From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Ava King is a newly divorced mother of a teenage son when she moves into her grandmother's home in posh uptown New Orleans. Ava's the descendant of slaves. Grandma Martha is about as waspy as they come. And their connected past is one of the plot twists in The Revisioners, a new novel by National Book Award finalist Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. There is some magic in The Revisioners, but it's less fantasy than testament to intergenerational bonds, in this case between Ava and her great-great-great-grandmother, born enslaved on a Louisiana plantation. Well, Sexton is on her way to Georgia for the book tour. She will be at Avid Bookshop in Athens this Friday, November 8th, and at Karis Books in Atlanta on Sunday, November the 10th. But first, she's joining us from Advanced Media Studios at UC Berkeley in California to tell us more about the book. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, this story, The Revisioners, follows two women, basically, in three different time periods. There's Josephine and Ava. We meet Josephine in 1924. She's a mother, grandmother, a black woman running a farm. What's her life like in this period of time? Well, it's interesting because she, um, we meet her in 1924, and though she's widowed and in her 70s, she's flourishing. She, um, she's surrounded by family and friends. She um, has solid resources. And I think most importantly, she has perspective because she's consistently looking back at her previous life as an enslaved little girl. And you always feel like she's measuring her current self to what she was. And so there's this consistent sense of gratitude that you feel from her. And um, and she's in a good place. However, this is the year that a white woman moves next door. And she's lonely. She's insecure. She's younger. And um, she attempts to forge this friendship. And at first, Josephine is reticent for reasons we would understand because of history. Um, but the younger woman persists, and they form this cautious relationship that's upended when Josephine learns that um, the neighbor is a member of the clan. Yeah. And we also get... Ava. Uh, this story takes place in 2017. Again, she's a newly single mom. Her mother was black. Her father is white. And then she goes to live with her aging paternal grandmother, Martha, basically to help out. Right. So what ha- what has their relationship been up until then? Very distant, um, very superficial and distant. Ava hasn't had a great relationship with her father. And um, because of that, she's distanced in general from that side of the family. And there's also an, a racial element to it. I think um, I think Martha has become more and more progressive as she's aged, but we definitely get the sense that Martha had to come to terms with her son marrying a black woman and having a biracial child. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Ava's failed relationship with her grandmother is a symptom of that sense of coming to terms with it. But however, you know, Ava's grandmother's health is failing and Ava's financially strapped. So she decides it might be a good opportunity to build on that relationship. And it could certainly be a win-win for her logistically. She wouldn't have to pay rent. Her grandmother um, will get some help. And it starts out going fine until Ava's grandmother's behavior becomes more and more erratic and even racist. And um, Josephine's and Ava's storylines, though generations apart, threaten to converge. Yeah, and they both have sons and, and strong relationships with their sons. Josephine's son is called Major. Uh, Ava's son is called King. Both of these names demanding respect. And and although this is a book, there are strong relationships on this matrilineal, this female line. So much of it is also about the relationship between mothers and sons. What were what were you exploring there? 
Well, I think it was a way to, for, I have two black sons, and I think it was a way for me emotionally to tap into the vulnerability of that experience. Um, I just find that I worry for my son in a way, both of my sons, but especially my older one, in a way that I don't worry about his twin sister. Hmm. And I, I wanted to showcase two characters off the bat in an extremely vulnerable position. They have these sons and, um, and they're at risk just by virtue of their race, even though their timelines apart, the risk feels very similar, especially in the beginning. And I thought it would be a good way to just, um, up the ante of the stakes really early on in the novel and to explore the danger that, that black boys are facing now yeah. and that they have been facing for generations. Right. They're, they're, they're sort of different on an epic scale, but not different in other ways. So th this is right. one of those things about, following generations apart, a number of parallels, sometimes small things like the imagery of um, men fixing cars in the background or the feeling of cooking food with family for family. What, what is this through line of cooking and food here from the time of slavery to contemporary America? I mean, on a basic level, I just love to cook and I love to eat. But on a on a more serious level, I think it's also a way to show the power that these women had in a very limited way. You know, the power to, to provide for their families, the power to enrich them and nurture them. It, they were so limited in terms of how much freedom they could have and how much authority they could have. But they did have that. And so it was just it, it, it was one of the ways I could show non-traditional power, the types of power that women might have had to tap into when they were otherwise constrained. We see also a big contrast here. You have these big, beautiful family meals among the black families, community and good food. But then in 2017 at Grandma Martha's house, the dining is a little different. There's a private uh -huh. chef. <laughs> Mealtime is a bit more stilted. So, so that distinction draws very uh, sharply. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I hadn't consciously thought about that. It's just the way that those characters presented to me. But it is different at Martha's house. Um, you don't feel the comfort. You don't feel the the relaxation or the familiarity. I mean, it's almost like strangers are sitting there eating together. It's very stiff. And um, it it's just that Martha, you know, for it, it sounds cliche, but for all the money she she's been able to accumulate, um, and all the status she just she's she's basically living in this huge empty house and she she even says I thought I would be surrounded by family mm -hmm. and it's it's such a it's such a painful moment because Ava is her granddaughter but you see that distance there she thought she would be surrounded by family and yet she essentially has to pay her granddaughter to live with her Margaret Wilkerson Sexton is my guest author of the new book The Revisioners which comes out tomorrow she's going to be reading at the Avid Bookshop in Athens on Friday and at Karis Books in Atlanta on Sunday uh there's also a memory Eva has of her mom, Gladys, driving her over to visit her grandmother and giving her mm. etiquette lessons before dropping her off. So there's a lot here about how people behave and, and, and the kind of performative aspects of how people behave differently one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm talking about between, you know, uh, white and black relationships one-on-one -on -one versus when they have an audience uh, do you mm. see the so what so what's going on here? What are you exploring in that those kind of relationships? I see it in Charlotte acting differently to Josephine in front of her peers, and similarly Grandma Martha with hers. Right. It's it's interesting because um, 
we see in that section when when Charlotte is is having her friends over and Josephine comes in, their dynamic totally switches. One on one, Josephine is obviously the authority in the relationship. You know, she she has the power to invite her into her home, and she exercises that power. And um, and Charlotte is obviously the one to ask for advice. She's very deferential to Josephine. And then when she's surrounded by other white women, the dynamic that you would expect in that time period arises instantly and really without anyone trying to do it. It just happens naturally. And you see the same thing generations later in Ava's section when Ava's grandmother's having a party and um, or a, a, a book group meeting and she has her her friends come in. Ava starts to feel more like a servant Mm -hmm. and she even treats her, the grandmother even treats her more like one. And um, the arrangement becomes more apparent, whereas before there was more of the grandmother and granddaughter relationship coming through. And um, I mean, it's interesting because especially in the contemporary period, these are people who are supposed to be progressive. They're reading books that would suggest that and they're having discussions that would suggest that but that old dynamic is still there mm-hmm. there there seem to be caught in each period white characters caught in these dual motivations of wanting to connect but also exhibiting or carrying the power that being white in america affords them and their thoughts and, right. their, and their actions um there's always suspicion, too. You know, um, Ava gets warned by her mother, you know, you don't want to walk, move in with her. And, and people from the neighborhood say, don't let your son talk to the white girls in, in, in high school. Mm-hmm. And similarly, um, back in back in Josephine's time. What are you what are you saying? There? Mm. Well, I I wanted to play a little bit with because I I thought about having King up against a physical danger the way in the other sections the black characters' bodies are actually at risk. Mm -hmm. And then I thought it might be more interesting to have the danger be more subtle and psychological. And I I wanted to explore what what damage is done to a child and also to the adults who have to prepare the child when, when you're constantly expecting oppression. And just the weight of carrying that everywhere, you know, I I don't want to give anything away, but for King, the major issue for him is not necessarily his body being at physical risk, even though we know about police officers in contemporary time and, 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 and we know about other dangers to black boys. That's not what he's up against. And I just, I just thought how damaging that must be. You don't see the concrete effects of it but how damaging that must be over time to carry that burden of expectation of pain Mm -hmm. everywhere you go. Yeah, how does that turn in on someone internally? Exactly, exactly. Well, this concept of, in many ways, I think it's um, Josephine's son tells him, you Mm -hmm. know, don't spoil Jericho, his son. Mm, you know, don't mm-hmm. don't don't treat him sweetly because he's he shouldn't get used to sweet. He's going to be in a world of tart. You know, right? So this idea of you have to protect yourself, you have to steal yourself against right. others. Has and that, what am I losing by doing that? You yeah, know, go on with that. I'd like to hear more. Well, because I I mean, even personally, I feel that I feel um, unless I know otherwise, I I steal myself up for the world that I'm facing. And what am I losing in doing that? What not only not only what aspects of relationships am I losing, but what am I losing personally in terms of my ability to experience a full sense of joy, you know, and a full sense of of being in the moment? It's it's not something I've 
most of the time I'm not able to access that experience and it's a loss. Well, and then for you as as a mother, you know, the generational progress is slow, but it's there. You see parents toiling to raise their kids to to be both cautiously realistic, but also hopeful and, and not focus on the differences. So there's risk and there's sacrifice in trying to make it better. What does that look like for you now and, and for your kids? Yeah, I know my kids are sick, so I'll have a different answer in 10 years mm-hmm. because, you know, they're so young. It's the, the conversations I've had with them so far um, have been so age appropriate that they're benign. But I, you know, I know what's coming. I know as they get older that the conversations will get more serious um, and they'll they'll start to understand what I'm thinking. Like they don't know what I'm thinking when I say things to them. They don't know where it's coming from and they don't know what my fears are. But as they get older, I'll share more of a context with them. And I I worry that when I share the context, they'll I'll also share without knowing it the fear. Mm-hmm. And I don't want them to walk through the world that way. I want them to be under I want them to understand the world we live in on an intellectual level, but I don't want them to carry the pain of it because I I don't know that it would serve them, you know. And that's actually part of what I wanted to do with this book. I I feel like with my first book a kind of freedom, I was very focused on exploring the intergenerational trauma um, that's passed down. You know, it was about three generations of a New Orleans family um, spanning World War II to post-Katrina. And although we met the first narrator um, in the Jim Crow, in, in the 40s in, in the Jim Crow South, um, her her lifestyle was actually very polished. And um, and then as, as the book progressed, the generations behind her declined in status and economic stability and all of that. And so the book had a dismal tone because it was following this tr- this downward trajectory, attempting to showcase that though Jim Crow was abolished, we have systems like the war on drugs and mass incarceration to come in behind them in their wake to do similar work. Um, and here I, I didn't want to I mean, it's also obviously the, the themes are extremely heavy, but I, I wanted to show the the power that comes through intergenerationally when you're dealing with ancestors who have survived major trauma. Um, where does all their hope go? Where does all their wisdom go? Where does all that strength go? I believe it resides in the descendants. And so I, I sort of want to approach that with my kids. Like I want to share the context of the world we live in. And I also want to talk to them about the power they've inherited by virtue of being descendants of survivors. And, and what, another thing that carries through it this is this kind of contact with the spiritual world and magic, which I'm going to just have to leave on the table right now and leave to readers. But this title, Mm -hmm. The Revisioners, refers to something in the book, a group in the book. But are we all playing a role in sort of revising history? Is that what you're going for here? Well, that's interesting. You know, nobody has asked about that yet. So yeah, it's it, it describes this group of this community of enslaved people who perform rituals to attempt to escape slavery, supernatural rituals. And I'll just leave it there, too. Um, But it's also the idea of this community doesn't necessarily extricate itself from the oppression of that time. It, It works in some ways for them and in some ways it doesn't work for them. However, we have these descendants many, many generations later who are benefiting from the power that was accumulated during that time. And so the community of revisioners, they didn't necessarily revision their own lives, but we see that their efforts were seen 
down the line. Mm. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, author of two books now, her 2017 debut called A Kind of Freedom, was nominated for a National Book Award, a lot of other notice. It was a New York Times book review editor's choice and notable book of 2017. Well, her new book is called The Revisioners, and it's out tomorrow. Sexton is on her way to Georgia. She's going to be at Avid Bookshop in Athens on Friday and November 8th, and at Karis Books in Atlanta on Sunday, November 10th. There's more information at gpbnews.org. We will leave you, I think, appropriately with a wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Nina Simone as we head into a short break, but stay tuned when we come back. Grits. A look at how boiled cornmeal became a southern staple when On Second Thought returns. I wish I could say 